It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, just a quick note about the Super Bowl. One of the themes that you're going to be hearing a lot about over the next two weeks, which I was not aware of, is it is the first Super Bowl, and this is number 57, geez, um, that will have two black quarterbacks. Jalen Hurts for the Philadelphia Eagles, Patrick Mahomes, of course, for the Kansas City Chiefs. And somebody wrote this. I'd like to attribute it. Maybe I got it off Twitter. I just don't know. But it says that their dads, Patrick Mahomes Sr. and Avrion Hurts, are present fathers that raise great men. The narrative of the absent black father is pushed through the media. So let's remember to push this as well. Salute to you both for changing the narrative. Well, it's great that they have dads that prepared them for successful career and successful life. Um, and it's an interesting sidelight. I mean, obviously, there have been a number of black quarterbacks who have won the Super Bowl, uh, but I don't have time to go through the list now. Well, look at this. Some breaking news involving George Santos. No, he's not quitting, but the congressman has told his Republican colleagues in a conference meeting that he will step down from the committees that he was assigned to. A lot of people thought Kevin McCarthy shouldn't have assigned him to any committees given this just huge, growing uh, list of lies, fabrications, exaggerations, going down to the basic details of his resume. And every day there are more and more and more. There are obviously very serious questions now being raised about, you know, what he had originally said was a personal loan to his campaign. Where did this money come from? So he's in a lot of trouble. And though he tries to sort of smile and bring reporters donuts and not say anything, clearly the pressure must be getting to him. So a couple of congressmen quoted by various news organizations. Uh, one, Don Bacon, says uh, Santos said he would recuse himself from committees temporarily. He isn't even on any great committees. I mean, the small business and something like that, until things get settled. Marjorie Taylor Greene telling reporters, and then he asked that we all support him when everything settles down for him to serve on committees. Um, he's on... Uh, science, space, and technology, as well as small business. So I guess that's throwing the critics a bone. Uh, but this notion that he is propagating that things will settle down, well, things may not settle down. I mean, he may have problems in terms of the way he filled out those federal disclosure forms and so forth. But uh, finally, some movement on the Santos soap opera, which I still think is going to make a great Netflix series. You know, there was a lot of attention paid uh, when CNN chairman Chris Lick said, well, you know, maybe since I don't have anybody great to uh, replace Chris Cuomo at 9 p.m. Eastern in prime time, we'll do some counter-programming and we'll have some kind of comedian. And I actually thought it's not a terrible idea, but he didn't, you know, I also said, don't take this seriously because he doesn't have anybody. Uh, the people who are available either won't get much of a number and um, it's just a hard thing to do. Well, in an interview with the LA Times, Licht admitted that, you know, look, he said, having come from the Stephen Colbert show, it takes 200 people to produce a comedy show. Even I didn't think it was that large. Uh, so that's not going to happen. But he did say in this interview that on Friday nights, I guess at 9, um, CNN will start playing Bill Maher, who, of course, hosts his show on HBO, which is part of the parent company of CNN. 
But it's not going to be the whole show, because HBO wouldn't like that. It's going to be the overtime segments, the ones that he kind of tapes for the web, and now CNN will take advantage of that. Hardly, uh, it's more of a Band-Aid, obviously, given that, according to last week, CNN had the lowest ratings in nine years. Um, So we'll see if Bill Maher can help, at least on Friday nights. Okay, Donald Trump, because he doesn't have enough other things to do running for president, is suing Bob Woodward. Now, he threatened this before. You never know with Trump. He threatens to sue a lot of people, but he does sue a lot of people. He has sued, you know, he wants sued a newspaper for a bad architecture review. And, you know, he does this in part to get back at people, often journalists, sometimes others, who he thinks have wronged him. Now, remember, Trump voluntarily gave Woodward 18 on-the-record tape-recorded interviews back in 2019 and 2020 while he was president. Well, now he's filed a suit against Woodward, Simon & Schuster, his longtime publisher, um, saying, claiming, alleging that while he gave Woodward consent to record the conversations for the sole purpose of a book, that didn't extend to packaging those recordings as an audio book. The complaint alleges various violations of Trump's copyright interests, accuses the uh, publisher of unjustly profiting from this, seeking almost $50 million in damages. Good luck with that. That's based on an assumption that Woodward would sell 2 million copies of the audiobook. I don't know how it's sold, uh, that you download for 25 bucks. Uh, Former President Trump's lawsuit is without merit says a statement from Woodward and Simon and Schuster. We will aggressively defend against it. All these interviews are on the record, recording with President Trump's knowledge and agreement. It's in the public interest to have this historical record. You know, I mean, I don't think Woodward, I don't think Trump has a case at all. Uh, because, you know, where is there a written agreement that says you can't use these except for purposes of the written book? No. So if he allowed him to tape record it and he wants to you merchandise that, you can criticize it if you want, but I... Seems to me like a real legal long shot. Well, so what does the former president have to say about this on Truth Social? I am continuing my fight against the corrupt, dishonest, and deranged fake news media by filing this lawsuit against a man whose image is far different from the fact. Uh, They are misappropriating, manipulating, and wrongfully profiting from my voice. Um, Not only trying to profiteer from doctoring tapes... What? I, I haven't heard this doctoring tapes thing. Does that mean that, uh, you know, when we went around doing interviews on this, that he only used selected excerpts? Doctoring, you know, sounds really bad. Okay. Open and blatant attempt to make me look as bad as possible. Look, there was a lot of stuff from Trump's point of view in that book. That's why he talked to Woodward. And a lot of stuff damaged him when he talked about how he knew that the COVID was far worse than he was saying publicly. Anyway, that's that. Um, the Biden administration has leaked word that it will end the COVID emergency on May 11th. I haven't read up on this, so maybe there are valid reasons. But one, why leak it more than three months in advance? Two, if the COVID emergency, which triggers a whole bunch of things about the powers of the government, can be over May 11th, why can't it be over next week? Like, What's the difference? I spent a lot of time talking yesterday about the gut-wrenching fatal beating of Tyree Nichols 
So I'm just going to briefly touch on it here. I do have a column on it today on Fox, and it was a way that I could sort of bring all my thoughts together about five black cops and a defenseless black man, about the age of cell phone cameras giving way to police body cameras and how it's much harder to get away with these, this sort of brutality now, and, and lots of other things. Um, yesterday, two more Memphis police officers were suspended. One of them, whose voice apparently could be heard on tape, you know, because there were others who came in addition to the five who did the beating, said or was heard saying, I hope they stomp his ass. What is wrong with these people? This is sick, depraved, disgusting, and that's why it has shocked the conscience of the nation. Also, three EMTs were fired uh, for apparently not doing enough to save Tyree Nichols' life. Um, first of all, it took the ambulance like 22 minutes to get there, and then I don't know what happened in the ambulance itself. He died in the hospital three days later, but uh, this is a lot more to play out here. Whoopi Goldberg on The View says, do we need to see white people also get beaten before anybody will do anything? Don't write us and tell me what a racist I am. I'm just asking. Is that what people have to see in order to wake up and realize this affects us all? She said that, um, I've had it up to here with this S. I don't know what we have to do. I don't get it. I don't understand why we are constantly asking and asking and asking. Is it just because folks have dehumanized us and made us like some kind of monsters? I'm sick of this. You should be sick of this. Let's get something done. Look, you can't underestimate, even given the fact that the police officers charged with attempted murder, second-degree murder, I should say, and the defenseless Harry Nichols, which I will say again, who I will say again, 29 years old, a father, working two shifts at his job, no criminal record. It just is awful that this led to his death. Now, um, okay, we're going to come back in story number one to Donald Trump. And the reason I'm going to do that is because of the Stormy Daniels case. Now, your reaction is probably the same as mine. Like, Stormy Daniels, that's ancient history. Why are we even doing this? But you had the Manhattan District Attorney investigating Donald Trump for various things. He was Cyrus Vance, Jr., actually the son of the one-time Secretary of State. And... His term was up, and the new DA came in in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg. And he was not as hot on the case that he inherited. And so he didn't do anything. And a couple of his top prosecutors quit, and that just seemed the end of it. You know, there's always this, the Trump haters and the Trump detractors are always like, well, just wait till this case. For example, in Fulton County, Georgia, you have the DA there, um, possibly proceeding toward indictments, but it's not clear whether the former president would be among those indicted. But here, this case is only about Stormy Daniels. And if you have forgotten, she is the one-time porn star who was paid off. I mean, there's ample evidence in the case she was paid off. Um, and so now, Alvin Bragg, for whatever reason, is presenting a case. He has convened a grand jury and is presenting a case involving this. Um, you don't convene a grand jury unless you're looking for indictments. But I have to say, of all the things that Donald Trump is either accused of or the worst things that people say about him, you know, ranging from, I mean, you could go back to what he did with Zelensky. You could go back to January 6th. You could go back to Charlottesville, uh, and on and on and on and on. 
getting money to a porn star kind of sounds like one of the more minor episodes. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying it's perfectly okay to do it. But I mean, if this is the only charge brought against Donald Trump, if in fact he is indicted, I mean, this makes getting Al Capone on tax evasion look like a really serious matter. And I don't know why the change of heart by this DA. Uh, now, you can be sure that the, this uh, got a response from Trump, who says, with murders and violent crime surging, the radical left Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, just leaked to the fake news media that they're going after the stormy, quote, horseface Daniels bull, working closely with the weaponized Justice Department. Well, no, it's not a Justice Department matter. That's the point. I think of all these inquiries going on, the Justice Department is the least likely right now to charge Trump. I think in Georgia and New York is where there might be charges. He also says never had an affair. This is old news. I think most people assume that he did. So, again, this all uh, started in the closing weeks of the 2016 campaign when after uh, when Stormy Daniels was saying that she was going to go public with the story of their affair. I don't think that would have sunk Trump, but it's certainly something you want to avoid in a presidential election. So um, what happened is the National Enquirer was heavily involved in this, and it had been run by David Pecker, who was a close friend of Donald Trump. And Michael Cohn was involved. Michael Cohn was, was the intermediary. He was the bag man. So the, Donald Trump or the Trump company gave Michael Cohn a lot of money, he gave that money to the National Enquirer, which set up this hush money deal. And that's what it was. If you accept this money, um, you are agreeing not to discuss this publicly. When she later broke, but that was after Trump was already president. So here's uh, Michael Cohn saying uh, on MSNBC yesterday, Donald Trump will ultimately be held accountable for this Stormy Daniels payment. I've always said this investigation that was to be brought by uh, Alvin Bragg's office is the most detrimental to him, his freedom, his livelihood, his business, because it's the easiest to prove. The checks are the checks, right? I mean, there's a paper trail there. You don't have to get into some, you know, convoluted uh, thing that requires, that relies on the uh, testimony of somebody who's a felon. The money was paid. The money was paid to keep her quiet. And there was this other woman, Karen McDougal, who also got money. But uh, we're just sort of reliving the old days here. So I think we'll find out one way or the other. Uh, I mean, it's always possible the grand jury doesn't indict. But, you know, the famous saying was also comes out of New York uh, from a uh, long ago judge uh, that, you know, prosecutors could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And needless to say, if this happens, and again, I think... This is the only charge brought against Trump. I mean, come on. But let's just say the story doesn't lack sex appeal. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Story number two. Here's the latest version of a theme, a take, a, um, a bit of political analysis 
that you've heard or read again and again and again about Kamala Harris, but there hasn't been one for a while because things were going somewhat better for Joe Biden uh, in terms of keeping the Senate in the midterms, in terms of getting a lot of bipartisan legislation through. And so it was all just sort of quieted down. You know, then the assumption will be that the Biden-Harris ticket will run again. Washington Post says that there are concerns about Kamala Harris's political strength um, from more than a dozen Democratic leaders interviewed for this story in key states. This is not so much, is she a drag on the ticket as the running mate? This is, if Biden ends up not running, uh, how would the vice president of the United States fare? as a candidate president, which obviously she ran for before with very uh, disappointing results. Harris's tenure has been underwhelming, they said, marked by a series of struggles as a communicator and at times near invisibility, leaving many rank-and-file Democrats unpersuaded that she has the force, charisma, and skill to mount a winning presidential campaign. So this is uh, pretty aggressively worded. Um if he seeks re-election, she would be a central part of the campaign. Uh, if he steps aside, she would instantly move to center stage as a potential successor. But yeah, so would a lot of other people be running. Uh, many Democrats worry about Biden's age as a liability. But they also fret over the lack of an alternative with a demonstrated ability to capture the party's imagination, let alone 270 electoral votes, which is kind of like what it comes down to, whether you like math or not. Um the doubts about Harris fall into two categories. Some party members feel Americans are simply not willing to elect a woman of color as president, especially given the racism and sexism they see in recent years. Others worry that Harris herself lacks the political skills to win a national race. Well, you know, all fair criticism. I think she's been doing somewhat better. And I think, I think she had an awful first year year and a half maybe, I think because she was out there talking to Democratic voters about abortion rights after Roe fell, I think because the Democrats now have 51 votes in the Senate, she's not as tied to Washington as the tie-breaking vote. And I think she's done a lot of overseas stuff, and the turnover in her office seems to have settled down. So I'll give her all of that. But, you know, there's just something about Kamala Harris, never met her, where she seems often to engage in a lot of word salad and not say anything. And therefore, I think it makes her seem inauthentic. Maybe a lovely person. She's obviously an experienced politician, a former attorney general, a former senator, and now as vice president. Maybe she doesn't get fair coverage as the first black female Asian vice president. And maybe it's all self-inflicted. But the Post piece ends up by saying, you know, a few Democrats want to roll the dice and then saying, look, some governors in recent months have emerged as, you know, possible standard bearers, including Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Gavin Newsom, who's obviously dying to run in California. And then these two guys who were just inaugurated, Wes Moore in Maryland, African-American uh, combat veteran or military veteran who... As I've said, I, I know a little bit, and I think he's tremendously charismatic. And the other being uh, Josh Shapiro, the new governor of Pennsylvania. But the thing is, they've been in office for 12 minutes. And so, you know, I can't see, I mean, the cycle doesn't work for either one of them. I mean, they asked the voters to give them four years. And, you know, the 
whatever the first primary is, South Carolina, New Hampshire, uh, Michigan, early 2024, you name it, it's too soon for them to run. They would have to decide to run in six months, raise a lot of money. So if you want to throw their names out as, you know, about the future of the party, fine. But it's one thing to run. I know Barack Obama was a senator for a couple of years when he decided to run. But at least he'd been a senator for a couple of years. All right, number three. So there's this piece in Atlantic by McKay Coppins, who um, is pretty well connected on the right. And it basically says Republican Party doesn't want Donald Trump to run. This name keeps popping up on this podcast. It's not, I didn't set out to do it this way, folks. I'm trying to give you the most interesting pieces out there, but this will probably be the last Trump piece. Okay. So here's the deal. A lot of Republicans privately want to dump Trump. And they have pretty, you know, self-interested reasons for doing so. In 2018, he lost the House. In 2020, he lost the White House and the Senate. And in 2022, he lost the Senate. So they see him as a loser. They think he's got a lot of baggage. You know, they think Ron DeSantis has the right policies. You know, you've heard all this. But what McKay Coppins argues is that even Republican officials with MAGA hats in their closets and Mar-a-Lago selfies in their Twitter avatar will privately admit that Donald Trump has become a problem. And he goes through, you know, he seems uh, angrier than ever. Aside from his most blinkered loyalists, virtually everyone in the party agrees it's time to move on from Trump. Now, this is where I take issue. I don't think virtually everybody in the party agrees. And beyond that, I don't think it's up to the party leaders. I think it's up to the voters. And they will not, not start voting until a year from now, which means we're going for a year of this, you know, media analysis and speculation and bloviation. The party leaders don't get to decide. If the party leaders got to decide, Trump would not have been the nominee in 2016. But here's the interesting part, because I guess he talks to some of them privately. And I think he talks to a lot of anti-Trump Republicans privately, which may skew his view about how widespread this sentiment is. Ask them how they plan to do that. Discussion quickly veers into the realm of hopeful hypotheticals. Maybe he'll get indicted. Maybe he'll flame out early in the primaries. Or just get bored with politics and wander away. Excuse me. Um, Maybe the situation will resolve itself naturally. He's old, after all. How many years can he have left? This magical thinking pervaded my recent conversations with more than a dozen former and uh, current elected GOP officials and party strategists. Uh, They want something to happen to make him go away. And they would strongly prefer not to make it happen themselves. So they're wimps. You know, I mean, at least according to the people that, that Coppins talks to, they don't want Trump. They would like to see him vanish, and they're not willing to lift a finger. Why? Because they fear the backlash from the strong base in the party that he still has. So how is it that he still has a strong base in the party? Because if he didn't, then some of these people, aside from those who want to run, like Chris Christie and Nikki Haley and others, um, would be speaking out more forcefully against him. So there's one guy quoted on the record, Peter Meyer, a former uh, congressman who voted for impeachment, Uh, you have a lot of folks who are just wishing for his mortal demise. I want to be clear, I'm not in that camp, but I've heard from a lot of people who go on stage and put on the red hat, then give me a call the next day and say, I can't wait till this guy dies. And it's like, good Lord. (laughs) And then the Atlantic throws in, well, 
Trump's mother died at 88 and father died at 93. So good luck with that. Um, then he comes back to the multiple criminal investigations. Um, the donors could have something to say about this. Um, Coppins quotes an anonymous GOP consultant. He's talking about a private dinner in New York in 2021 when he saw a Republican billionaire give a speech about the need to keep Trump from returning to the Oval Office. He said he would devote large sums of money to defeating the former president and urged the other people in the room to join him. And there was an enthusiastic response. But a year later, eh, you know, it all fizzled out. Uh, everybody was sort of like, wait and see. And then here's an interesting kicker, which can't, can't say this is impossible either. Even if another Republican manages to capture the nomination, there's no guarantee that Trump, who is not known for his grace and defeat, will go away. I would just add, when Trump won the presidency in 2016, he said there had been fraud uh, and there have been you know, millions of illegal aliens who voted who should not have been able to vote because he wanted to explain away why he lost the popular vote. Anyway... So the theory here is that Trump shared an article on Truth Social saying he might run as an independent, which would be a spoiler if he doesn't get the nomination. That would be absolute doom for the Republicans. Um, the right to center-right vote would only, totally be split and it would guarantee Biden's re-election. And nobody, according to this piece, has any idea how to stop it. Now, you might say, well, Donald Trump's not going to do that. And, you know, he'll want to go out on a high note. I don't know if he's not going to do that. Teddy Roosevelt did it. He was, a, he was a very admirable, great, aggressive president. But he didn't want to get off the stage. And so after William Howard Taft succeeded him, um, Teddy soured on him. And he ran in the Bull Moose Party. And bully, that didn't work out so well. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, let's just dip into the Sam Bankman-Fried situation. Remember the FTX bankruptcy and the billions and billions of dollars that investors probably will never recover. So this guy who's supposed to be so smart and all of these journalists went down to the Bahamas and wrote these puff pieces about, you know, this young genius crypto king. Um, he's now being looked at for the possibility of witness tampering. Prosecutors said, it's a Huffington Post piece, Bankman sent an email and an encrypted message. See, you think maybe he didn't want anyone to see it? This month, to the general counsel of FTX, who's going to be called as a witness in the trial, in an attempt to influence his testimony. This is what prosecutors say. Quote, I would really love to reconnect and see if there's a way for us to have a constructive relationship, use each other as resources when possible, or at least vet things with each other. This was filed uh, in court once the prosecutors got a hold of it. You know, it's carefully worded, except for that last part, vet things with each other. In other words, you don't say anything that's going to get me in trouble, and I don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble. Um... Prosecutors are now calling for new restrictions on Sam Bankman-Fried, who's out, remember, on $250 million bail. Uh, they want him barred from contacting any current or former FTX employee. Uh, 
other than immediate family members, unless it's in the presence of legal counsel. Uh, also, uh, government's asking to restrict his use of these encrypted message apps like Signal. Um, he's using it for obstructive purposes. I, I don't know, like you're in all this trouble. You may go to jail for quite a long period of time. Does it make sense for you to take this risk? I, well, look, if the guy didn't have any qualms about playing with other people's money, and that's exactly what this whole thing was. This whole thing was taking money that didn't belong to him or belong to the other company that he owned that was run by his girlfriend and using it to, for loans for himself, for all kinds, you know, give, he gave a lot of money to the media, as you know, you've heard me talk about. Um, if he is dumb enough to do all that, then it seems to me that, yeah, he's dumb enough to send a, a, an encrypted message to a top official in his company, his former company, since he was kicked out. And I'm just shaking my head. And I feel sorry for all the people. I mean, I don't know that crypto was such a brilliant investment in the first place, but I do feel sorry for people who invested in it thinking it was safe. And it turns out, you know, FTX was just sort of like a holding company for this stuff. So now I want to move on to number five. And this is a challenge for me, I'll be honest with you. There's an incredibly long four-part series in Columbia Journalism Review. I've read two of the parts. It's, it's long. It's like a Kafka novel. And it's written by Jeff Gerth, longtime investigative reporter for the New York Times, who I have known fairly well over the years, and he's an incredible investigator. The, the challenge here is that he actually ends up criticizing the media's handling of the whole Russiagate debacle, I guess you would say. But it's hard for me to convey it to you because it gets down in the weeds. And so I'm going to try to do that. I don't, you know, it, it's, it's become one of these areas where you almost have to spend half your time studying this to know all the characters and so forth. But I think I can do it in a way, it's be really difficult to do on TV, but I think I can do it in a way that cuts through a lot of the noise. And I think it's somewhat courageous on Girth's part. Uh, you know, I first, I remember this so well, 1992 campaign. I went up to New York uh, to spend a few days because the New York primary was coming up. And Jeff Gerth had written the first story or maybe the biggest story to date, I can't remember, about Whitewater, the Whitewater investigation in the Clintons, the Arkansas land deal. On the cover of the New York Post, there was a very splashy headline about Whitewater, and I ran into Deborah Oren, the late Deborah Oren, who was then the top political writer for the tabloid. And I said, so what's in this piece? She said, well... It's the Jeff Gerth story in English. <laughs> His writing tends to be a little dense. And it caused, you know, because of the New York Post and because of the New York primary, it caused this huge uproar in a way that Whitewater had not previously, at least in my recollection. Okay, anyway. So it starts out by looking at the moment that Robert Mueller, after, I don't know, it was, I guess it was in the summer of 2019, ended his special counsel investigation. And Dean Bakay, then the editor of the New York Times, says to his staff, holy S, Bob Mueller is not going to do it. Um, 
And Baquet at this town hall meeting said he'd been, that the paper had been caught a little bit flat-footed by this. Here's Girth. That would prove to be more than an understatement, but neither Baquet nor his successor, nor any of the paper's reporters, would offer anything like a post-mortem of the paper's Trump-Russia saga, unlike the examination the Times did of its coverage before the Iraq War. And I had to do that in the Washington Post coverage, uh, completely blowing it in the run-up to the Iraq War, published in 2003, one of the hardest stories I ever had to write because I had to confront lots of my colleagues, including Bob Woodward, who admirably admitted um, that the paper had not done well, that there was too much groupthink, that he was part of the groupthink. Anyway, I digress. So Baquet uh, continues to say, I think we covered the story better than anyone else. Um, Times put out a statement, I guess, to Gers saying, you know, we stand by our reporting. Remember that the Times won a Pulitzer for this, and Trump is suing the Pulitzer board over the Pulitzers for the awards to the Times and the Washington Post. Okay, but here's a key, a couple of key points. But outside the Times' own bubble, the damage to the credibility of the Times and its peers persists three years on. And it's not going to go away now that we're heading into another season uh, where the press and its role, you know, is, is very prominent. Um, Gerth says there was an undeclared war between an entrenched media and a new kind of disruptive presidency. Yeah, there was a war, but it wasn't undeclared. It was totally declared. It was declared by Trump every day. So you go through this and I'm just sort of giving you what I think are the most revealing things about the media's conduct here. So stories in early 2017 about Trump and Russia and was there collusion and all that wound up being significantly flawed or based on uncorroborated or debunked information, says Girth. Other people, of course, have made that argument too. He interviews Trump for this piece. And Trump says to him, I realized early on I had two jobs. The first was to run the country, and the second was survival. I had to survive. The stories were unbelievably fake. Well, all the stories weren't unbelievably fake, but that's just a digression by me. Okay, Bob Woodward, here's that name again, told me, told Girth, that news coverage of the Russia inquiry wasn't handled well, and that he thought viewers and readers had been cheated. He urged newsrooms to walk down the painful road of introspection. If there's one thing I've learned in my decades as a media reporter is that the media are almost allergic to introspection. I mean, once in a while they'll be like, oh, how did we blow it? But most of the time it's, it's circle the wagons, it's being defensive. And here's Woodward, you know, the most prominent, successful, and famous investigative reporter of his generation, of his era, I would say. And he's saying we need to be more introspective about how he got so many things wrong. Then you get into Hillary Clinton and her campaign secretly sponsoring and then promoting unsubstantiated conspiracy theory about Trump and Russia. That, of course, has come out. Uh, Paul Krugman in his New York Times column called Trump the Siberian candidate. Jeff Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, labeled Trump a de facto agent of Russia. Matt Taibbi, who spent time in Russia, eventually compared it to the Iraq War. He said the more neutral approach to reporting completely went out the window once Trump got elected. Saying anything publicly about the story that did not align with the narrative, the repercussions were huge for any of us that did not go there. That is crazy. 
And you remember when, when Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, what about the 33,000 Hillary emails? Trump tells Girth, uh, I said that sarcastically. Well, that's a common thing. Trump says a lot of things sarcastically, but it's a way of getting them out there, whether it was sarcasm or not. Now, just a couple other points here. Um, after a piece uh, that ran in Yahoo, the Clinton campaign put out a statement calling this a bombshell report, but did not disclose that the campaign secretly paid the researchers who pitched the story to Yahoo's Mike Isakoff. Isakoff telling Girth uh, that his earlier description of the dossier as third-hand stuff, he said that he was, you know, there was skeptical, and in retrospect, it never should have been given the credence that it was. So some journalists are, are willing to engage and talk about whether they went too far. A lot of others are just no comment, no comment, no comment. Um, and then there's a piece in Slate by Franklin Fowler, uh, who worked closely with Fusion. Fusion was this um, company that had been retained by the Hillary campaign. There was a former Wall Street Journal reporter there who had a lot of connections. Anyway, Fowler forwarded drafts of his story to this private investigator firm, Fusion. Prior to publication, he declined to comment. Then there's a Mother Jones piece about a veteran spy providing the FBI, FBI information about this. And the FBI contacted Steele, who confirmed he had been a source for the article. Uh, the FBI then terminated its relationship with Steele. So finally, Bob Woodward goes on Fox. I remember this. And he said the dossier was a garbage document. Trump tweeted, thank you to Woodward. Trump is now suing Woodward. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope I haven't gone on too long, but I really want to sometimes just use the format of this podcast to dig deep, deeper than you can do uh, in a lot of other formats to try to give you whatever insights I can scrape together. Hope you'll subscribe if you're not already getting this in your inbox, and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.